0: Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you, Lord, that, um, that it speaks truth. And Lord, we, we ask and pray this morning that the truth of your word would um, would pierce down into the deepest, deepest depths of who we are. Lord, that we would not be unmoved, that we would not be unchanged as we encounter what your Spirit is doing through your Word. Lord, I pray that, um, I pray, Lord, that you would give Pastor Luke um, clarity, wisdom, humility, and confidence, Lord, um, in the proclamation of your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Morning, everyone. Morning. Uh, I'm Luke, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and we've been walking through the book of Romans. We've been <clears throat> going each week, uh, kind of unpacking what is probably for many people, many theologians, many pastors have considered to be one of the biggest highlights of the entire Bible, and that is the book of Romans. And so it's a really dense book, but it's a book that is so treasured because of how clearly it talks about the gospel, the very thing that we're gathered here each and every single week to talk about, to talk about Jesus and help us all grow closer to him. Now, um, you know, as as pastors, we kind of wear, um, we end up wearing a whole bunch of different hats, right? There's Trying to kind of like uh, define just exactly what it is a pastor does on any given week is notoriously difficult Um, and demonstrated by the fact that like Cameron today, we're talking about this, right? Uh, And sometimes on Sunday mornings we get up here and we've got a really pastoral, very shepherding message, one of comfort. And sometimes we get up here and we've got something that we really need to teach um, and so today, I'm feeling like I need to kind of have on the hat of profit a little bit. Now, before any of you go out and tweet, I guess you don't tweet anymore, but any before anyone goes out, puts a post on social media, um, and says, Pastor Luke said he was a prophet, hold up. Um, <laughs> uh, what I mean by that, because a lot of times what we think of, when we think of profit, and we've talked about this here before, because we've done a series on the minor Prophets and prophetic books in the Bible. But so often when we think of that word prophet, we think of like future telling and kind of weird dreams that don't make any sense. Um, And that's not necessarily even what the Bible emphasizes when it comes to prophets. The prophets most often had a word of God for the people of God, calling the people of God to return to God. That is so often the message or what a prophetic word in the bible ends up being is a word of god for the people of god calling the people of god to return to god it's a invitational calling out to say come and know the lord repent return and know the lord and so that is what kind of i think of and what i think is a biblical picture of a prophetic word of sorts. And in some ways, that is kind of what preaching is every week here. It's opening up the Bible. It's saying this is the word of God, and it is his his message for you, and you ought to heed it and come closer to God. And so today's message is that. It's a a message for you that I believe um, that... It will be a, um, this will be a, a word that perhaps calls you up, that perhaps is a wake-up call. Uh, and, and so it's a, but it's also a really, really good word. It's a really encouraging word. It's a word that refuses to leave us where we're at. So we're going to pick up kind of where Cameron kind of left off. But before we do that, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. So if you want to, if you have a physical Bible with you, like we've been encouraging you to, um, you can pull that out. We have Bibles underneath the pews in front of you, but we'll also have the Scripture up on the screens as well. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2. So that's in the second half, kind of, what do you call that, the last quarter of your Bible. Romans chapter 2. Now, before we dig into that, I want to kind of want to ask a kind of like a hypothetical question that I feel is in that is in perhaps the mind of some, some people, perhaps people who don't come to church, haven't been to church, have no interest in church. Uh, and it's this question, what good is? is it being a Christian, if they look the same as everyone else, they're just more judgy? Right? What good is it to be a Christian, if you just look like everyone else who's not a Christian, you're just more self-righteous about it? What's the answer to that question? Right? And is that an accurate representation of what Christianity is beginning to look like in... America, in our towns, in our churches. I um, did a little bit of research yesterday. I was trying to kind of find uh, I was trying to find one study that kind of maybe perhaps did a survey of Christians to try and see where Christians perspectives on sin uh, and things that God had kind of communicated in, in some of those beliefs. I couldn't find one singular study that was comprehensive. But I found like a number and kind of like a couple of different studies. And rather than boring you with those and trying to parse out what each one means, it was just generally kind of like looking at different ones and kind of all the different categories. It was around like, you know, covering different sin topics, different things that the Bible says Christians ought not to live or do this thing. There was about of like people who regularly attended church. Of that, of the people who regularly did that, thirty percent either said, "Ah, I don't really think that's that big of a deal," or uh, it "Probably should be do. I should, probably should change the way I live, but I'm not." So it was like roughly a third of people who were going to churches on a regular basis were unconcerned. That their life did not match up with what the Bible said. People who self-describe said, Yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. You can find a number of these different studies on different particular topics. Um and there is always a percentage of people who were just like, Yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know that like one thing that Jesus says that I just don't like? I just kind of ignore that. And and that's a um I don't know. That's kind of what this passage is going to, or going to talk about today, is what would God say to Christians who look no different than the world? What does God have to say to people who would say, you know what, like it, it's not that big of a deal that I look or that my life hasn't changed at all since knowing Christ. And so we're going to dive into this passage. And um, and kind of unpack what it says. So these aren't just my words. These are the words of the Lord. So let's walk through this passage, and let's see what the message is. We're going to start up in v- chapter 1, picking up kind of where Cameron left off last week, in verse 28 of Romans chapter 1. So it says this, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So this passage right here, Cameron talked about. His main idea, if you were here last week, you kind of remember, is that We, as humans, tend to suppress, push down, keep underneath the water and ignore the truth of God. It's our, when when God's truth comes into our life and we don't like it, we want to push it away, hide it away in the closet and ignore it. We suppress the truth of God. And Paul here, when he is writing that passage, he's talking about largely unbelieving what we call Gentiles, people who are not Jews. And so he's talking about all these people who don't know God. And he said they just, they're sinful, they approve of awful things. And then all of the people who are listening to this passage, reading along with what Paul's saying, they're kind of like, yeah, go for it, Paul. Yeah, tell them how awful the world is. All those people out there, they don't come to church, they don't know God, they just kind of like do their own thing, right? Like... Can you kind of hear that in our own context, right? How sinful the world is out there and how us in this room we've got it together, right? And it, you kind of get this picture of um of kind of like the kind of the kid who is like kind of happy that their siblings getting in trouble. Right? It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you're you're gonna be grounded, right? And and if, I'm sure if you're a parent, uh, and when I was a parent, like if I ever expressed any attitude like that, I definitely also got punished, right? Um, and, and that's what Paul's going to do here. He's, like, he's talking about all these people who don't know God. And now he's going to shift his focus in these next verses. Because he's been kind, of, it's been kind of hard, kind of gave a hard word to those who don't know God. Now he's going to talk to the people who know God who have God's word, and what does he have to say to them? He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, You therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So in short, we could summarize these passages to say simply, beware. Your judging heart is building up wrath because of your hypocrisy. Paul's turning to the Jews, the people who had the word of God at the time, who knew what it meant to keep the rules of God to follow after God. And he's like, you guys are all sitting there feeling very content and feeling like, you know what, yeah, all those other people, they're doing all those awful things. They deserve to be judged. And then Paul turns to him and says, well, yeah, you can feel that way, but how are you behaving when the doors are closed? When... No one's watching you. Are you not living the same life that they are? And Paul is calling them out. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, something that I think is in human nature, um, but happens a lot in Christian circles. Um, there's like a fancy word for this in kind of like psychology and counseling. It's called projection. Um, but there's this idea, and what I've found even true in my own life, right, is that when we get, say, we're encountering somebody and, you know, maybe, maybe even a loved one, right, maybe a sibling, maybe a close friend, someone in our social circle who just, whenever they do that one thing that we just cannot stand, right, maybe they kind of act kind of conceited, or maybe they have like a way of like uh, canceling on you, or maybe it's a certain, like whatever that thing is that you just like, they do like a number of things that maybe bug you, but there's like one thing that just really gets under your skin. Sometimes what happens when that's happening is that that particular thing that bugs you the most about some people is the thing that you yourself like, don't like about yourself or you yourself struggle with, right? I I found this out um number of years ago. I was serving in a ministry with someone, and I could not stand this guy. I thought he was very self-conceited. I thought he always wanted the spotlight. He was just kind of always just kind of jockeying for position. I was just like, oh, I can't stand that guy. He's just He thinks he knows it all. He doesn't. I know it all. Right? Now, you're all laughing because you obviously see what was going on there. Right? Sometimes it feels really comfortable for us to be accusatory of someone over here on how they're living than to look in the mirror and examine, is that in my own heart? Are they simply behaving? Are they behaving in a way? That maybe I don't behave that way, but that's still in my heart. It's how I want to behave. Or perhaps, you know what, perhaps I feel really guilty over this particular thing, but it makes me feel better if I can be angry about this person's thing. And we need to be aware of that. Because when we do that, we're falling into exactly what Paul's talking about here. Do you not... Keep up judgment when you judge others, when you yourself live the same way. So Paul is putting out this warning, and then it kind of continues on in his argument. He goes on to verse 6 through 11. <clears throat> it says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. First to the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So this little passage, those couple of verses right there, if you were to read verse 6, and then if you were to read verse 11, you'd find that they're essentially saying the same thing. Verse 6 says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. Summarize the point, God fairly judges your heart and actions no matter who you are. Right? He's calling out, and he's saying like, just because, this is Paul, Paul speaking to the Jews, and he's like, just because you are a Jew does not mean that you just get a pass. You just get a free pass. God is not one who shows favoritism. God is the one who judges rightly. He judges fairly. It, this would be, God is not the parent who shows favoritism. He's not the God who says, you know what? Like, you're the special child. You can do whatever you want. Uh, and then he just goes over here, and he's just mad at all the other ones. Right? That's not God. God, is, God does not show favoritism. Because if he did, it would not be very righteous of him, right? If we go all the way back to kind of our key ideas of this of this of the book, if we were to go back to one uh, verse verses chapter one verses sixteen through seventeen, this is Paul saying he says I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew. Then to the Gentile, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall shall live by faith. And there's a number of different ways that the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, And one of the ways, one of the ways that righteousness plays out in the book of Romans is in God being a righteous and fair judge. That God is fair, that he's not just compromising and just saying, oh, you know what, like it's, like sin isn't a big deal. The gospel isn't God saying sin's not a big deal. He's saying it's a massive deal. It's so massive that my son has to die for it. That's God's righteousness on display. So if we go forward... Back into Romans chapter 2, we pick up in verse 12. Paul continues his argument here. He says this. He says, All who sin, apart from the law, will perish apart from the law. So he says, okay, all those who sin apart from the law. He's back to talking about the Gentiles that he started talking about in the beginning, those who um, do evil um, and suppress the truth. He says, they don't have the law, and we'll talk about the law in a moment. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. All right, so what is Paul saying there? He's got all of this language and the law, and someone's under the law and someone's not under the law. Like, what is he saying? So let's kind of break that section down a little bit. We can summarize this by saying that God can judge us all because we all have the law. Right, so it's kind of like if you were to get in trouble for something, and you're like, "Well, I didn't know that was the rule, right?" Like, teacher, I didn't know I wasn't allowed to do that. Um, and God's Paul's saying, he's like, "No, no, no, like you don't get to play that card," because he talked about it earlier, and he's talking about it now again. It says even though I should define the law before we go any further. So when The Bible, when Romans talks about the law, what is it talking about? In one essence, it's talking about like the first five books of your Bible. First five books of the Bible are what the Jews considered their law. It's all of the the rules, the regulations, the covenant includes the Ten Commandments. You've seen those movies. Um, And all of that, that's the law. And it all governed how the people of God were to follow God, how to behave, how to live their lives, how to conduct society, all of those things were included in there. And that was all about how you set yourself apart and you were part of the family of God. And so he's talking about people who don't have the law somehow have the law written on their hearts. And that law that's written on their hearts is still a law that they can be judged by. So what's he talking about? What's he saying when he says, well, there's people, people who weren't Jews, who didn't have the first five of the books of the Bible. They never read the Torah before. Like, what do they have written on their hearts? Well, I mean, one simple way to kind of see, to talk about this is just the the very simple conversation we have. If I was to, if I was to walk down the street, we're walking down the street towards each other. And we're both on the sidewalk, and we're in America, so we're, we should be walking. I'm walking on the right side of the sidewalk. You're walking on the right side of the sidewalk, coming the other way. And for some reason, I kind of just not paying attention, and I just kind of bump into you, right? Now, any, now, what should happen, right? I was maybe on my phone. I wasn't paying attention. I was watching some TikToks, and I bump into you, right? I should say oh I'm so sorry like that was my fault I didn't intend to do that my bad right so sorry can I help you pick that up But if I instead just kind of like get out of my way like I get really mad right like like there's something inside of us that says well that's not that's not right right how is it that two strangers can have an interaction And come into um, a dialogue over what is right and what is wrong, about the way you're treating me is not correct, right? If we look across society, across the world, across history, why is it that civilizations tend to agree on, like, you know, not murdering people, not stealing things that don't belong to you? Why is that? If they've never talked with each other, it's not like all the, like, people got together and decided, you know what, I'm gonna, like, right, I'm gonna go back to my tribe in Asia and my tribe in the Americas and we're gonna make sure to instill the same moral ethics in everybody, right? Like, they didn't have some sort of, like, way of communicating that, but across history and across time, each and every civilization grows up with this sense of what is right and what is wrong. Well, where did that sense of right and wrong come from? Because it's 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 more than just it's it, it's something that seems to be universal. And if there's if you were to walk into a classroom on your first day of class and you see up on the chalkboard written rules, you were to say, "Hmm." Would you sit there and say, "Hmm, I, I guess those rules just spontaneously got there." They just happened to be there, I guess. Like, you, You wouldn't think that. You would say, well, no, no. There must be a teacher who decided the rules and came and wrote the rules up on the chalkboard so that we could all see them. And so similarly with us, when we all in our human experience have these rules of how we ought to treat one another written on our hearts, our conclusion should not be, huh, that's interesting. Our conclusion should be somebody wrote those there. And Paul is saying, those rules written on people's hearts, even though they're there, they fail to keep those rules. So God comes up to the person who doesn't have the Bible, and he comes and he says, well, I did did give you these rules on your heart, and you didn't even keep those. And so I won't judge you for what you didn't have, but I will judge you for what you did have. And then Paul turns over and he looks to the Jews, to those who knew God, who had the word, and he's like, you guys, you guys did know this. You guys were aware of what God had said. And then you also didn't do it. And I will judge you for that. So God fairly judges our hearts and our actions, and God can judge us all because we have um, we have this written on our hearts. Now, I want to I want to get nerdy um, because I love I love being a Bible nerd. It's one of the things that I get really excited about. Um, I was telling people earlier this week. I'm like I'm really boring at parties unless it's like a Bible trivia party. Um and so we're gonna talk about um like because Paul wrote this book, wrote the letter of Romans at a particular time in history. And just like I can get up here and I can talk about like TikTok and Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called now. Um like you guys all get that. You guys are all like, oh yeah we were to replay this sermon in like 300 years from now, somebody would have to be like, I don't know what they have, I don't know, future Google, uh, and look back and say like, what what was he talking about, TikTok? Like, what was, he, what was that? Like, they wouldn't get it, right? And so similarly, when we look back into this book, when Paul wrote it, there's things that Paul knew about, and that his audience all knew about, and then he was able to reference those. He was able to say, like, okay, I'm going to reference this thing that I know most of you guys know about, and then I'm going to kind of riff on it a little bit so that I kind of make a point. So what most people who uh, study this passage have come to think is that Paul, in this portion of Romans, is largely borrowing a argument that's very familiar. This is an argument, this is the type of things Paul has been saying would have been like somebody would have been like, "Oh, I think he's quoting like such and such rabbi. Oh, I think he's quoting that one book." They would have been like, "Oh yeah, I hear what Paul's saying." And then the ways that Paul is changing what he is saying is making people go, "Oh, that's different." And so Paul is thought to have been quoting from the book of the Wisdom of Solomon. Now, the book of Wisdom of Solomon, it's not in our Bibles. If you have a Catholic Bible or you came from a Catholic tradition, there's a portion of the Catholic Bible called the Apocrypha. The Wisdom of Solomon is contained inside of that. Uh, It's a place where the Apocrypha is books of the Bible that are not books of the Bible. They're They're books adjacent to the story of the Bible that have also been included in Catholic Bibles. And so Paul is kind of quoting this passage. He's quoting a passage from that book, and he's like, you guys are all tracking with what I'm saying, but I'm going to change it a little bit. So I want to read to you a portion of what he says out of The Wisdom of Solomon." So I'll have it up here on the screen. But this is from that book, The Wisdom of Solomon, says, But you, our God, this is the Jews talking to God, are kind and true and patient and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. But we will not sin because we know that you uh, acknowledge us as yours. For to know you is complete righteousness and to know your power is the root of immortality. Hmm. Now, if you listen to that, and you hear that last, particularly that last sentence, for to know you is complete righteousness, and to know your power is the root of immortality. Is that what Paul says here? He kind of says something a little bit different, doesn't he? See if I can find it here. For all who sin apart from the law will, be, will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul is like, no, 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 you guys are all thinking about that passage where it says to, to know, to know the Lord is, is, is the thing, right? To know you is complete righteousness. Paul's like, uh, uh-uh. uh, just to hear the word, just to know God is not complete righteousness. To hear the word and then obey the word is Complete righteousness. Paul is turning the way they thought about things up on their head. And so, too, for us, right, it remains true. It doesn't matter how much of this book you memorize, have read, how many sermons you've listened to, if you've just ignored all of it. Right? That doesn't do you any good. There are people who make their entire career out of reading and studying this Bible and making papers and teaching about it who don't believe in God. Simply understanding the Bible does not make you a Christian. Just because you can win at Bible trivia night, because everybody goes to those, just because you know all of those facts does not mean that you are a Christian, that you have a good relationship with God. Just because you show up to church does not mean you have a good relationship with God. So let's finish out Paul's argument, and then we'll talk about this directly applied to our lives. So we'll finish up starting in verse 17, reading to 24. Paul continues, he says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and you approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because You have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So to summarize that is to say, do we we blaspheme God when we make a, let me read what I wrote up there, we blaspheme God when we make a proudly life, when we live, proudly live hypocritically based on our own goodness. We blaspheme God when we proudly live hypocritically based on our own goodness. When we're living a world where we're, you know, like, man, if everybody just listened to me, everyone just did what I told them, like, everybody else, like, their lives are a wreck. I got it figured out, right? Um, I think Cameron told me about this quote or this sign that was on someone's... Um, Uh, someone's office. Now I'm going to butcher it. Um, But it said something to the effect of, like, um, please take any of my... feel free to take any of my advice. I'm obviously not using it. (laughs) Right? When we live a life where we think we've got it figured out, if everybody would only listen to us, but we have zero reflection or ability to look in the mirror... To take and say, you know what? This also speaks to me, not just to the person next to me. Right? Have we ever have we ever done that? Have we ever read a verse, ooh, I wanna I wanna post that on social media and hope so and so sees it? Or like, oh man, like I, I really wish so-and-so, I wish my husband or my wife or my kid or whoever was here on Sunday today because this was the message they really needed to hear. Right? Like, we do that. We we take the word of God and we say, you know what? Ah, that doesn't have any... I, I'm good. But that person over there needs to hear that probably because they look like they're a wreck. Right? And <laughs> when we do that, we're dishonoring God. When When we say, you know what? I've got it all together. I'm living the perfect life. But really... The thing is, is that our image, that fake mask that we have up, people can see behind that. We rarely put off as good of an image as we think we are. People are much more able to see the cracks than you think they are. Here's, Here's a key question for today. Do we say one thing with our mouths, but do a different thing with our lives? Do we say one thing, I believe this thing, I believe the word of God to be true, I believe what God has said is the plan for my life, the way of human flourishing, I believe that. But then when it comes to the way that I live my life, I don't actually end up living that way. My actions are not matching up with what I have said I believe, I think, or I teach, do we say one thing with our mouths, but do a different thing with our lives? It's kind of a. Um, have you ever heard the phrase? Uh, classic wisdom: Do as I say, not as I do. Right, and and you know it's you know it's really tempting to say that perhaps to like those who are coming behind us, whether that be uh, you know if you've got kids, right, if a parent. Uh, If you say, like, do as I say, not as I do, right? Um, Something that seems to be true is that the example usually beats out the words. Right? The lived example of how someone lives, not what they say, tends to be the trump card. A A kid follows after the example much more easily than the words of a parent. And same for us as we speak into the world. I don't know who originally said this, but there are not a lot of people, if you go out into the world, talk to people who aren't all that interested in faith, and you ask them, do you want to read the Bible? They might say, ah, not really. It's kind of long. Um, They might not read this. But they might read your life. Not everybody will read the Bible, but they will read how you live. They will read how you treat them. So, what I need to do now is I need to kind of balance things out. Because this is one of the hard things about preaching the entire counsel of God, is I could probably just keep going. Um, Because, like... I, I want to, um, but also because the art, because what Paul has to say isn't finished yet. I can't leave you there because if I were to leave you there, I wouldn't have told you everything. So I'm going to I'm going to skip forward a little bit because I think it's it would be it would be irresponsible of me to simply have said all that I've said today and not finish the sentence. So. I want to skip forward because I need to answer this question. Because if you read this passage, and this is it, you're done. What you could hear, what you could hear me say is that we're saved by works. What you could walk away from the sermon thinking is saying, well, I just need to work really hard. I need to obey the law, do the right things in order to earn God's favor. And that is not what we teach. It's not what I believe. It's not what the Bible teaches, right? So let's finish the sentence In Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through 24, we'll talk about this passage much more next week, but let's just read it in brief here, 20 through 24. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Catch that? No one will ever be able to keep the law written on their heart, the law written in this book, no one will ever be able to do it. And no one will ever be declared right in God because they tried really hard. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That law in the heart, the law in here, lets us know that we've messed up, that we've fallen short. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What is that saying? Saying, by faith alone, through grace, you are saved. That you cannot earn God's favor. I was talking about this in the baptism class, and I used it there, so I'll just use it here. Right? We so often, about the way we just kind of default, think about the world, to think about God, and we think about salvation. This is kind of the default narrative that people fall into. Imagine a massive mountain. One of those big mountains with a tall, pointy peak. And up in that peak, is it's stuck up in the clouds so that you kind of can't see it. And up there at the top of the mountain is where God's at. And then we, us humans, are kind of down here at the bottom of the mountain, at the base of the mountain. That's kind of where we're at. And we, by default, think, we realize, the law shows us the law in my heart, the law in the Bible, shows that that mountain is big. The gap between where God is, the gap where I'm at, is large. And we decide, you know what? I just need to do enough good things. If I do more good than I do bad, if I try really hard, if I just have a really good heart. If I have really good intentions, if I just kind of be a decent person, maybe if I go to church every once in a while, by doing that, I'll find the right path. I'll slowly climb that mountain, and I'll eventually get all the way up there. Paul says, nope. Uh, People try that, and they get lost on the mountain. No one ever actually makes it to the top. And the gospel truth is, because that's still the situation, us down here, God up here. If we can't get up there, how how does this get solved? God has to come down to where we're at. And that's where the gospel starts. Starts all the way at Christmas with Christ coming and being born as a baby and laying in a manger, coming in flesh, coming and inhabiting and being in the broken world, surrounded by sin, pain, suffering, and brokenness, and then living a life among us and with us, and then dying on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. Who took our brokenness, all of our inadequacies and problems and sin, and he took it, he was nailed to the cross. And along with him, all of those things were nailed to the cross. And then he died on that cross. He was buried in the grave. He stayed there for three days. And then when he came out, he left behind not just grave clothes. He left behind all of that sin and brokenness. And he came into new life. And we, by faith, when we say, yes, Lord Jesus, that becomes credited to our account. That becomes not just the story of Jesus, that becomes the story of my heart, of your spirit and my spirit. And so, what are we doing here? So what is, how do we, how do we balance this, Right? Because Paul seems to have just said, like, shame on you for not following God's commandments, for ignoring him. But then he's also saying, but you, you can never ultimately please God on your own anyways." How do we balance these two truths? I want to talk about, well, first, I want to show you where this is in the text. If we go all the way back, to chapter 2, verse. we're going to start in verse 1, just to read this short section, because this idea is right here. This is the key idea today. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Here's the key. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, of his forbearance, of his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What Paul is saying, he's like, yeah, you don't have to follow the law. And we'll talk about this concept so much more as we go through the book of Romans. I feel like I'm spoiling the ending, but um, the point here is is that, yeah, you aren't, like, yeah, you can't perfectly follow the law. You won't perfectly follow God. It's just not going to happen. But God knows that. And God has chosen you. He's been kind, forgiving, and gracious. And he's made room for you to be imperfect. But he's not. Christ didn't die on the cross so that we could just stay the way we are. God's like, I didn't come, die for your sin, so that you could just kind of go, all right, cool. It's kind of like if we were to think about... um. If you were to go to dinner with someone, a good friend, and your friend, or friend says, you know what, I'm buying dinner today, all right? Do you buy the most expensive things on the menu? Do you say, oh, that's great. I'm just going to buy all, I'm going to buy like, I'm going to buy like, actually, I'm going to buy multiple meals because this is going to be like my meal planning for the week right here. Um, yeah, I would like I would like the tomahawk steak. Um, I would like fish and chips, and you know, and you just kind of bat, I want, but I want all that to go. And so, like, do you take advantage of your friend when they offer to um, take you to dinner, right? And they say I'm paying. Do you take advantage of that? No, I mean you 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 do take advantage of it. Like you still order your food, right? You enjoy the food. But you don't go beyond to what is reasonable so that you disrespect or dishonor them, that you're taking advantage of them. I want to talk about this by quoting somebody um, who I think said this better than I can, so I'm just going to simply quote them. This is uh, from a pastor, theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany around the early part of World War II, um, and he, he received lots of criticism uh, from all different angles when he was uh, alive and serving. And this is in his book, um, Cost of Discipleship, which is a book I gave all the small group leaders are reading. And he talks about this. He calls what he, he talks about this idea called cheap grace. And I just want to read this section because I think he says the core idea better than I can today. Says this, cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. But instead, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for those whose sake a man will pluck out an eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And at what cost did God, um, what what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. While we were still sinners, while we were stuck, while we were still imperfect, and while we were enemies of God, before we had ever done anything to make a choice to follow after God, Christ died for you. Christ saw you in your brokenness and said, no, no, I'm coming for you. I'm going to save you from where you're at. And that is given to you freely by faith. But he's asking you to also follow after him. The words of Christ say it this way. If We turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 24. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. If it's there. I can just flip to it. Luke chapter 9, 23 through 24. This is Jesus. He said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus is saying, if you want new, eternal life, you've got to follow after me. Here, in a few minutes, we're going to have people being baptized. And baptism is a physical telling of the gospel with our bodies. It's this image. Why Why do we dunk people? Why don't we just sprinkle some water on them and call it good? We dunk them because we believe it is the most clear picture of the gospel, to say that with Christ on the cross, my sins were crucified. He went into the grave as I go under the water and he came out of the grave in the newness of life and so do I when I come up from the water. When I go into the water, I went, my old self, when I first get into the tub, I'm dunked under the water. When I come back up, my old self is left behind. That's the picture of, Of the gospel. That's what we believe. And so, why then do we continue to say we should just live like the old self? Paul's calling us to newness of life to follow after him. So, I have two two questions. First is to say, what's the story that we're telling with our lives? What is the story of my life telling? Is it telling the story of the gospel? Not that I'm perfect, not that I've got it all figured out, not that I like magically just jumped from being a baby Christian to being super Christian, but is it telling the story of someone who says, Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow after you. I'm not going to do it perfect, but I'm going to try. Is it telling the story of someone who's willing to say, you know what, I need to hear the gospel each and every single day? What story is it telling? And then finally, or two two more questions, I guess. One is to where have we ignored what God has plainly said? If you've been following Jesus for a while, this is a word for you. If you feel like, ask the Lord, "Am I ignoring you?" Ask the Lord, "Is, is there something where I've decided?" Just going to pretend that's not there. Ask the Lord. It's much the same question that Cameron asked last week, and then finally, if the if the ground is level, is flat, we all stand at the same position at the foot of the cross. How then ought I be treating other people? If we all contribute nothing to salvation except for our sin then how should I be treating and loving those around me? Do I have a heart of judgment or do I have a heart that sees them and sees the other person as a fellow sinner in need of Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you in need of your grace, in need of your Direction and your guidance in your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that this morning you would be awakening ourselves to you so that we might clearly understand and see the life that you've called us to, the life that you have freed us to live. Lord, you didn't die for us to stay where we're at. You've died for us so that we might live in newness of life. Lord, today I pray that this message, ultimately I just pray that your word would have its effect in people's hearts and minds. That you might be calling us closer to Jesus. That we might understand what it means that you gave your son for us and how much that costs and how we might also understand how freely it has been given to us that we might know you and have salvation. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified in our hearts and that you would be told as the story of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.